Life can be stressful, from our marriages and other relationships, to kids, our job, traffic, financial worries, of course the holidays, or a general angst about life itself. What are the tools to manage our anxiety and our oh-so-complex time on Earth? We will explore that today, mindfulness and meditation, finding your authentic center today here on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. How to stay centered in the hustle and bustle of life is our main focus today in this episode on mindfulness and meditation. And we're speaking with an expert about the different methods and forms of meditation, their benefits, and how you could start incorporating a little bit more of self back into your life. Mindfulness and meditation, finding your authentic center here today on An Organic Conversation. But first, as always, here's our week's review. Our week's review. And Helga, I have to say, this this thing you have about reading something from Conscious Company when you get a new article <laughs> is really fun for me because you're basically giving me the cliff notes of what we need to know about consciousness and sustainability. Yeah, it's such a great little magazine I found, Conscious Company, the future of business as usual. And I'm not even sure where I get it or I how do I get actually, it, but I do get it. It was a gift from somebody at B Corp. They signed you up as a gift. Oh, right, because an organic conversation is certified B Corp. Anyway, there was an article in the current issue on food waste, food waste by the numbers. And food waste, of course, for me, has a very special memory. I helped create a school lunch and cleaning program where we took out kids to the farms and had them help in the harvest and learn where the food comes from. And then we brought all that foods to public and private schools throughout Marin County, just north of San Francisco. And at the peak of the program, we were able to have organic food be accessed by 10,000 children. That food at, at the end didn't fully feed 10,000 children, but supplemented the meals of 10,000 school children. And it was free, and we stayed within the school's budget. So food waste, it really opened my eyes to just how much is thrown away, about you know, 10 to 15, 20% maybe on the production side. And then in, at the retail store level, a few more leaves here and there. And at the household level, another uh, double percentage. And the liter of spoiled milk or the carrots that you can bend around your forehead after 10 days because you forgot them in the crisper. And then restaurants and food service and it's a lot of food. And actually, this article just put food waste to the test by the numbers. 40% total is the estimated amount of food in the U.S. wasted that goes uneaten between field and plate. And that totals $165 billion of food thrown away by Americans every year. You know, it's interesting because we've had a lot of episodes that talk about this very specific topic. We did an episode with the Food and Water Watch director, Winona Howder. She has a great book called Foodopoly. And then we did another episode with uh, Jonathan Bloom, who wrote American Wasteland. And in each of those episodes, we talked about food waste, but also what's being done to try and overcome these unbelievable numbers of food that's being thrown out. And 
you know, dumpster diving, which is not necessarily, I think, the the politically correct or even recognized term for what people are doing. But a lot of people, I mean, $165 billion of good food that's being wasted. There is a lot out there. And people are coming up with innovative ways to collect food that would otherwise get thrown away, and in some cases actually does get thrown away, and use it to feed people who are hungry. Yeah, they're saying that if we only reduced food waste by 15%, right, not not even eliminating food waste because some maybe is inevitable, but if we just reduced food waste by 15%, 15, 1.5, we could feed an estimated 25 million Americans. So it is not at all an exaggeration to say not not just the money that we are would be saving on a private household level, but just if we can reallocate that food, I believe you know over 100 million Americans live in food insecurity. So that is only quote unquote 60 percent. If so, if if roughly if half of the food was not wasted, we could feed every single American out of a food insecurity. And, and there are, it, that's amazing. It's empowering. And there are a lot of empowered people who have created <coughs> businesses around doing just that. In fact, we have a friend, Komal. She runs a, a company called Feeding Forward. You can learn about that at feedingforward.com. And they are coming up with smart ways to end hunger and food waste within the Bay Area and expanding it beyond by collecting food that otherwise would have been thrown away, that is very fresh and is being taken to people who are in need. There is a lot that we can do to help. Yes, food waste, an ongoing topic here on an organic conversation. I'm Helga Halbert. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And our focus in this hour is another kind of waste. It's wasting precious time worrying and not being mindful, not being in the state of flow. Mindfulness and meditation, finding your authentic center, our focus in this hour here on an organic conversation. And before we dive into that topic fully, first... We take a mindful look at the world of health and beauty. Here's Sitarani Palomar, as always, a.k.a. Chef Sita, and her holistic bite. Today I want to talk about an unusual kind of detox. And I've mentioned on the show before that I make my own deodorant. It's highly effective. I'm really, really excited about this effective blend I've been able to come up with. It's baking soda, arrowroot powder, and coconut oil. You can find a lot of great recipes online for making your own. But baking soda is a very alkaline ingredient. And after a bit of time, it irritates my skin. And this is not an uncommon thing for people who are using natural deodorants that have baking soda in them. And it's in part because our skin likes to be slightly acidic. It's part of what helps prevent infection and inflammation. So one thing that I've been doing to balance this is by creating a mask of apple cider vinegar, which is acidic on your body with bentonite clay. And this is a, there's a great recipe online. I found it from Wellness Mama, who writes such wonderful tips about health and wellness and holistic beauty. And this works really well and quickly and helps to soothe the skin under my arms. So I make a paste with a teaspoon of clay and a little less than half a teaspoon of apple cider vinegar, and then add enough water until I get the right consistency, and then spread it on my skin as a detox mask for under my arms. And then after, you know, a couple of treatments, I can go right back to my baking soda deodorant with comfort and confidence. It works well. And I think that 
finding a natural deodorant is a really important step in your holistic lifestyle. I mean, most of the commercial deodorants on the market contain propylene glycol, which in most cases is made from petroleum. There are some vegetable-derived versions of propylene glycol. But I did an article on the concern with propylene glycol for Credo Beauty. You can find that on their blog, credobeauty.com forward slash blog. And this ingredient, propylene glycol, which is, like I said, in most commercial deodorants is recognized as a hazardous substance. That's a really quick summary. There's a lot more to say in the subject, and I'll save that for later. But if you are thinking about switching to a natural deodorant, or if you already have, and you're finding that your skin is a little bit sensitive after a period of time to the baking soda, try this apple cider vinegar and bentonite clay mask. And that's this week's Holistic Bite. Thank you, Sita. Yes, wonderful. And being mindful with your skincare products and with your skincare regimen, that's really our topic, being mindful, how to stay centered in the hustle and bustle of products and life and advertisement and all of it. (laughs) Mindfulness and meditation. That's our focus in this hour of an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Balamar. And we'll be right back with so much more. Stay tuned. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. How to stay happy and in the flow and mindful in the fast pace of life, and especially during the holidays, of course, mindfulness and meditation, finding your authentic center here in an organic conversation today. That's our focus in this hour. And with us now is Dr. Judson Brewer, who's joining us today from the center of mindfulness, actually the epicenter of all this at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. He is also the Associate Professor for Medicine and Psychiatry at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, the Adjunct Assistant Professor at Yale School of Medicine, and the Research Affiliate at the Department of Brain and Cognitive Science at MIT. Dr. Brewer, do we have you with you? Thanks for having me. Yes, lovely for you to make time and It is a really fast-paced life that we all are living, and we are literally bombarded with information and stressors and traffic and advertisements and all that. And there is something that you describe in an amazing TED Talk that's called Flow, and we want to touch on all those points. But it starts with mindfulness and meditation, and it's lovely to see that all these top schools that you are part of now kind of take this really seriously, even as part of the medicine department. 
Let's start with an easy question first. Mindfulness and meditation, is that the same? Is one leading to the other? How are the two related? Well, I think of meditation as a support for mindfulness. So we can be mindful when we're meditating, or we can be mindful walking around in our everyday lives. So there, there's strong overlap because you can practice meditation and being mindful when you're meditating. And at the same time, you don't necessarily be needing to formally meditate to be mindful. You can still be paying attention you know, on purpose and not being sucked into things or trying to push things away. It's a perfect segue into our next question, which is about the science behind meditation and what it actually does to our brain as far as measurable benefits. And really, I can't imagine we could have a better guess because as Helga started out with these incredible titles associated with your profession, you are working in that specific field of mindfulness and meditation as a science that has proven health benefits. So what does meditation actually do for your brain? I would start with why do we meditate? And it's really, I think of it, the simplest way to think of it is to get out of our own way. And if you think about it from a behavioral and neurobiologic perspective, there's a rich history of literature and science around why we do the things that we do, how we set up basic habits, whether it's eating, smoking, you know, whether they're healthy or unhealthy. And if we look at that behaviorally and understand the mechanisms there and then take that into the brain, this starts to illuminate how mindfulness works. So if you think behaviorally that we learn things through you know, positive and negative reinforcement, the simplest example would be trigger behavior and a reward. So you see some food, it looks good, you eat it, it tastes good, and then you lay down this memory, see food, eat food to feel good, uh, repeat, right? That has some neurobiologic correlates that relate to a number of things that lay down these habit pathways in our brain. So part of that is around, you know, we start to crave things and we start to move toward them and get caught up in them. So if you, you know, you start, if you eat chocolate when you're uh, hungry, then you start to learn, well, maybe I can eat chocolate when I'm sad. And then you learn to eat chocolate when you're sad and you feel a little bit better. And then we start getting in these, you know, addictive habit patterns where we're suddenly eating chocolate when we get yelled at by our boss. Well, that's not going to fix our relationship to our boss. But what that does speak to is how these patterns get set up. And so we have this urge to do something and then we automatically act on it. And that automatically acting on something is maybe one place where mindfulness is working in the brain because that getting caught up in a craving or caught up in a rumination or caught up in a certain thought pattern activates a part of a network of brain regions called the default mode network. And one current hypothesis is that a region of this network called the posterior cingulate cortex doesn't get activated necessarily by craving itself, but when we get, you know, when it takes us for a ride, when we get caught up and sucked into craving itself. And it goes beyond craving, right? I mean, chocolate is a perfect example. There's a world around food where people, not just people with eating disorders, but really any one of us, I'm sure, has moments of feeling guilty. Can I really eat one more piece of chocolate because I already had six? I, <laughs> you know, I have no discipline. Uh, oh my gosh, now I'm you know, overeating and I, I wanted to lose some weight and I can't and I must be an, an you know, undisciplined person. And I mean, you can spin any thought of a piece of chocolate to ruin your life or your day, really. 
And Absolutely. I think that's a great example because you can get caught up in the craving for chocolate and then you can get caught up in the beating yourself up for having eaten those six pieces. I'm sure Absolutely. we can all relate. So, yes. so are you saying, though, that these patterns that we've created that we are kind of, um, I suppose, instinctively carrying out can be broken with mindfulness and meditation? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think of this getting caught upness, for lack of a better way of saying it, that lines up with certain, you know, brain activity. And that same brain region gets deactivated when we step out of these processes, when we let go, when we're just curiously aware, which is what mindfulness is all about. When we're curiously aware, we let go, we're not sucked into them. And we can just watch that urge to eat that next piece of chocolate, or we can watch that urge to beat ourselves up just arise and not add to it, not perpetuate it, not get caught up in it. And so we can't win out the more we watch, the more we can actually break that habit loop. And you've actually seen this, right? People have measured brain responses of people in states of meditation to actually see what is happening in a neurological way. Yes, we've seen it both behaviorally where, you know, we've done studies with smoking cessation and found that mindfulness helps people quit smoking and breaks that behavioral link between craving and smoking. And we've also seen it in our fMRI scanner where we're measuring brain activity as people are meditating. And we can e- we've even done some real-time neurofeedback studies where we can phenomenologically link up subjective experience very closely with brain activity. And that's exactly what we're seeing. You're listening to an Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we're speaking with Dr. Judson Brewer, who's joining us today from the very epicenter for mindfulness, University of Massachusetts Medical School, in this hour here on an Organic Conversation on mindfulness and meditation, finding your authentic center. Dr. Brewer, when we talk about a flow state, again, in your TED Talk, experience that, and people, I'm sure, who listen to the show have experienced that where you're just, you don't think, you just do. You're so present. I had that maybe a handful of times in my life. Once I really remember playing tennis, I didn't need to worry about hitting the ball. I was so in the flow that I could not not hit it. It was just a perfect moment, how I like to call that, where the body and the ball were all just one entity. And when I hear you say meditation, for me, it sounds like taking a step away from the action and observing the action, which somehow is the opposite of flow. Can you explain how meditation allows you to have a barrier or a healthy buffer between uncognitive action that might be detrimental to your health or to to your overall um, happiness and how that relates to not thinking at all and being in the flow? Yeah, it's a great question. And again, this is just speculation, but my sense is that with early in practice, as people are first learning to meditate, they have to first learn to see that they are not their thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that can take you know some, some work uh, where they have to uh, really notice, oh, there's a thought and I, that is not me until they get used to doing that more automatically. So that is, like you're talking about, that is not flow. <laughs> um, but as we move along the continuum, we start to see that all of these things are just conceptual and that we can even be caught up in the concept of self. And that experience of being caught up in self is more of a, it's a, it's a contraction, whether it's mental or physical, and often it's felt physically, this physical contraction that 
literally demarcates us from our surroundings or the rest of the world. Well, not to get too esoteric, as we move beyond that through practice and through our own experiences, like the one that you described, as we get out of our own way even more, so first we have to disidentify with the object, Uh and then we have to learn that there's no me to disidentify with the object. Hmm. Yeah, so you're basically saying, of course, ideally we would all be living in a flow state, but our thought patterns and our you know, negative thoughts about who we are and what we do, uh, or sometimes even positive, but in this case even more judgmental is negative, get us so caught up, and then there are, there are more negative thoughts because of our negative thoughts that it needs that break through meditation instilling mindfulness to say, whoa, wait a minute, I'm fine, I'm a good person, my thoughts are running me right now, I'm going to take a deep breath, and we want to talk about what forms of meditation, what it really means, and what can, what people can do and incorporate easily, but take that breath, have a distance from your thoughts and your action, recognize that you, you, capital S, self, are still in charge, you're not your thoughts, they just pop up controllable or often uncontrollable and when we have that barrier through that greater gravity around center of self more flow state can come and life becomes a little bit easier is that a good summary yeah i think so and i think the way to think about this is you know we're we're constantly going through life as if we're driving our car with one foot on the gas and one on the brake well Mm. that's not a very efficient way to drive (laughs) So we start to pull our foot off. We realize that we can pull our foot off the brake by realizing that we're not our thoughts. And then when we pull our foot off the brake completely, this is your tennis experience. Boom. There's no you. There just is. Yeah, beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's again Dr. Judson Brewer. Dr. Brewer, we're going to take a little break, and we'll be right back with so much more, including the practical tips of what you have seen, how people can incorporate just a little bit more mindfulness to make it a little bit easier to live in this crazy world. Stay with us. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be right back with so much more. Stay tuned. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helbert. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Mindfulness and meditation, finding your authentic centers. Our focus in this hour here on the show and with us is Dr. Judson Brewer, Director of Research at the Center for Mindfulness, University of Massachusetts Medical School, also the Associate Professor, Medicine and Psychiatry, University of Massachusetts, and adjunct 
assistant professor at Yale School of Medicine, and last but not least, the research affiliate at the Department of Brain and Cognitive Science at MIT. Again, I look at your list of academic and professional engagement in this topic, and I feel like you are the perfect person to answer these questions because we want to give people an idea of the benefits that they can experience when they practice meditation. And you have made a career out of the research, the actual tangible, observable benefits of meditation. So what kind of results can people expect? What things would get addressed by meditation, things like depression anxiety, better sleep, and what are the results you've seen when people actually practice it? Yeah, great question. I think you can, thinking back to what we were talking about in terms of habit loop formation, you can look to see what types of maladies fit into that category. So for example, with depression, there's rumination that becomes a habit for people. And there are very good data showing that mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, for example, is really helpful for people with depression, especially those with, who have had recurrent ep depressive episodes in the past. Also, good data for anxiety. Uh, my lab studies addictions. We've uh, had really good results showing that it's twice as good as gold standard treatment for smoking cessation because people are sucked into that habit loop of smoking. Chronic pain is another great one. That's the, the first study that John Kabat-Zinn published back in 1982 was on helping people with chronic pain who hadn't been helped by any other modality. So those are just a, a list of a few. This isn't certainly an, isn't a panacea, but if you think about mechanistically how it works, you can see how it would work for these types of things that I mentioned and, and others as well. Well, and even I know there's a piece of research out that has proven that short meditation breaks can help children in schools because it helps their brain development. So what are we talking about? Are we talking about five minutes a day, 25 minutes a day, an hour a day? Yeah, I wish I could give you a, a nice cookbook answer there, <laughs> prescription. Uh, really, it's, it's pretty individual and also depends on, you know, what someone's circumstances are. So, you know, it's interesting, just last week, we published a paper on something called the temperament or a behavioral tendencies questionnaire, where in the fifth century, some early psychologists found that uh, if you observed people before they started meditating, you could get a sense for what their, what their behavioral type is uh, or their behavioral tendency, and you could give prescriptive meditative practices based on that. Um, wow. And they were actually talking about individualized medicine back in the 5th century, which is wow. pretty remarkable. So it depends on how you practice and who you are and what the aim is. So I would say, you know, with our smoking studies, for example, we found the strongest evidence with informal mindfulness practices in the moment when people were smoking or had an urge to smoke, which makes a lot of sense because, you know, if you practice sitting on a cushion for 30 minutes a day and try to use that to quit smoking, Sometimes it can be hard to translate that into mm. the moment when you've got this urge, when you feel like your head's going to explode. Uh, so I think a combination of in the moment as well as sitting practices can be very helpful. You know, there's one saying, short moments many times. So mm. you, it, ideally, you want to learn these practices well at the beginning before you go and, you know, spend an hour and a half or however long, you know, perfecting them. But it, uh, there's this quote from Vince Lombardi that I love, which is, practice doesn't make perfect, perfect practice makes perfect. Huh. So if you're going to sit for an hour, I would hope that you're sitting and doing practice more correctly. Uh, I grew up playing the violin, and if I practiced my scales 
out of tune, it's worse than not practicing at all. Yeah, or with the wrong posture and then ruining your back in the process, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Which I do want to point out your website for all the research and more information. That's umassmed, U-M-A-S-S-M-E-D dot E-D-U forward slash C-F-M, Center for Mindfulness, C-F-M. Forward slash. Yes, I don't think you need that forward slash necessarily, but yes, umassmet.edu forward slash CSFM. And yeah, well, you bring up a perfect point, Dr. Brewer, when we talk about the different forms of mindfulness, are we talking about guided meditation, walking meditation, sitting meditation, breathing, like all those moments, even taking a minute to appreciate your food before is kind of a mindfulness training. What do you consider a classic meditation practice when, when we talk about meditation? Or does it even matter? Is any, any mindfulness training good? Well, I think the key with all of these is that they're training us to pay attention to, and to get out of our own way. So I wouldn't say, you know, classically, I first learned breath awareness where I was paying attention to the physical sensations of my breath. But walking meditation is a great practice that someone can do. And we were teaching the golf team at Yale how to practice mindfulness. And so I was training them to pay attention as they were walking from class to class because they didn't have to add extra time to their already overscheduled days for that. Uh, we're, we're now pilot testing and eating uh, prog- a digital training program for eating, for helping people with stress and emotional eating, where they're paying attention as they eat single bites of food. Uh, So I think any of these that help train people to pay attention, to get out of their own way, and really live in that moment as compared to the past or the future is going to be a helpful practice. That reminds me of when I was a child, I actually lived in two worlds, and I thought it was really weird and I didn't tell anyone, but I was basically observing myself doing everything all day long. And I guess I was in a complete state of mindfulness, even as a you know young young child, five, six, eight years ago uh, old. But it was it was it really felt like wow, who is I'm I'm just watching as if I was being watched. But I was watching myself. I guess is that more common for children to already be in a more mindful state, or are children actually usually the opposite, where just anything goes and they just they are just in the flow? That's a great question. I would say there there are probably many scenarios that, that could occur in children, but it's interesting that children kind of learn <laughs> to become, you know, they model themselves. Neurotic of, adults, yeah. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so they learn to become first self-conscious. <laughs> yes. You know, this is why everybody's teenage years are so difficult, because we're learning, oh, wow, and comparing ourselves to others and wondering why we're not as good as others or whatever. So that that self-consciousness comes in and starts to get instilled. And then, you know, for some of for some people, this becomes overconfidence. And for others, people, you know, like you can just see how all of this sure. self-consciousness spins out in many different <laughs> flavors. So for somebody starting out, right, we have a lot of people, listeners, who, who love to increase their quality of life. And really, that's what we are talking about. We are talking about, you know, waste reduction one week and mindfulness now with you. But it's really about how can we live the most conscientious life for ourselves, for the people we engage with, and the, and the planet, of course. For someone starting out, what tips would you offer? What have you seen amongst your study groups for people or with people 
that have never been exposed to meditation? What's a really easy, beautiful, simple little exercise that doesn't take all day and you can't really do wrong or so wrong that it wouldn't benefit you? What, what tips do you have? Well, the first thing I would say is to just uh, pay attention in, in any one moment to what you're doing and the results of what you're doing. And so that you can learn to see this cause and effect relationship. Just as an example, when we teach people to mindfulness to help them quit smoking, the first thing we teach them to do is to smoke while paying it, really paying attention to what smoking tastes like. Mm. And what a lot of them realize, even though they've been smoking for 20 or longer years, is, oh, these cigarettes don't actually taste that good. <laughs> well, they've been smoking 20 of them a day for the last 20 years, and then suddenly they realize mm. they don't taste good. So that, <laughs> the reason I point that out is because we have to see clearly the results of our actions, and only then does disenchantment start to build mm. with the behaviors that we want to let go of. And from there, we don't have to force ourselves to change our behavior. We can start to see, oh, there's actually a benefit in letting go of this. And that's, you know, that's what mindfulness is about. It's about seeing clearly. So that's, a, that's something that we can do in any one moment is just notice, like, I'm about to yell at somebody or I just yelled at somebody. What was the result of that? How do I feel? How does it look like the, they feel afterwards? And then we can start to learn, oh, that wasn't so good, so that we, we can train our brains. Oh, pay attention when you're about to yell at somebody next time, and then you might be a little less excited to do it or become a little disenchanted from that. That's what mindfulness helps us train to do. So that's, you, we can do that anytime without any formal practice. It's just about having the intention to see the results of our actions. And then there are many things we can do from there is, you know, just notice how many times we're lost in the past and the future and just notice it. Oh, there's a there's a thought that I was lost in. What does it feel like when I was lost? Now, what does it feel like when I'm just aware of what what's arising in my mind space right now? You know, and we can practice with senses. We can notice um, just pay attention to seeing. We can just pay attention to feeling, sure. you know, what our body feels like, body sensations, those types of things. Great. Very simple. I heard somebody say recently uh, about the habit of getting caught in the past or the future, that mm -hmm. if he could just focus on the moment he was in, he could always find something to be grateful for. Yes. And I thought that that was such, because in your TED Talk, you say that studies show thinking about your vacation to Hawaii in advance of taking a vacation to Hawaii doesn't actually make you any happier than being in the present moment. And that seems like such a surprise because it's so easy and it's so, I mean, it's like, it's the easiest thing to allow yourself to get caught up in fantasy. Or regretting something that you did 10 years ago, which you can't change anymore yeah. anyway. It happened, right? Right. <laughs> so classic. Right. Well, even getting lost in that great fantasy, there's an excited quality to that that doesn't hold a candle to the joy and ease that comes with just being with whatever's coming up. Wow. So you, reality wins, you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's this bumper sticker, must be present to win, and that's it. Oh, oh I yes. love that. <laughs> oh, my, speaking of which, my favorite bumper sticker is, I'd rather be here now. 
Awesome. So the last thing we want to cover before we let you go is kind of the troubleshooting question, because some people start a practice and then they find difficulty keeping up a practice. So what are some of the most frequently asked questions about meditation and what might you offer in terms of troubleshooting if someone is having difficulty staying present in this new practice? And and who doesn't? (laughs) Right, absolutely. Well, we could talk for an hour about that, but I'll maybe start with one or two. The first one and one of the most common ones that I get is it's not about stopping your thoughts. You know, if you can stop your thoughts, give me a call because you're (laughs) going to be my first documented person that can do that. (laughs) It's not about stopping our thoughts at all. Our thoughts just come and go. It's about us getting caught up in them or trying to push them away. So noticing, not worrying about trying to stop thoughts, but noticing if we're getting sucked into them or if we're resisting them. And that sucked in quality or that, that resistance, that's something to really pay attention to and explore and get curious about. So that's the second piece of this is notice our attitude. If we're going into this with an attitude like, I need to meditate for 30 minutes so I'll feel better, guess what? I'm not going to feel better in 30 minutes. It's like our parents yelling at us saying, relax. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It just doesn't work. So looking at our attitude and seeing if we're bringing a curious, kind attitude as we're practicing or going throughout our day and just noticing the difference between that and having some agenda or trying to get somewhere. So those are those are two pieces that I would suggest. Let's see if there's anything else. No, that's uh, just that, great. I, I do want to add to the to the breathing. It's to you know having your eyes closed. If that's the meditation you're choosing, thoughts will come in. It's inevitable. And I remember when I started a sitting practice that I was fighting the thoughts. I was like, "Don't come in now," or "What am I going to do with you?" And of course, I was completely wrapped up in the thought itself. So not paying attention or just paying attention that. The thought came, and you are right back to feeling what breath feels like at the tip of your nose, was what our teacher told us. And it was such a good practice because it just allowed the thought to come in and to weave out just like warm water. And and that was it. That was the duration of the thought, you know, a second or two, instead of me taking it on and trying to suppress it or put it somewhere or categorize it or judge it. So thoughts will come up for anyone that meditates and just coming back to breath, for example, is, is always a great idea. But what else? It seemed like something else come, came up for you, actually. I think those are really good starting the points. Good starting the, other, points. the other piece is just, I, that I would just mention is frustration. If we get caught up in frustration, then bringing a curiosity to that even, oh, what does that feel like? And bringing a curiosity to anything that arises helps us be with it because curiosity in itself is rewarding. It feels good. So if we have this terrible anger thought come up and suddenly we get curious about it, wow, okay, I can be with that and not sucked into it. I do have one more quick question. Just to acknowledge your work and how this field has changed. This is, of course, thousands of years old practice uh, in the Asian traditions. Buddhism comes to mind. Of course, mindfulness has been promoted for thousands and thousands of years. And it only recently, I remember in the 70s and in the 80s and then like some 10 or 15 years ago, the first real studies of a meditating monk and seeing the brain patterns and the unbelievable change in their, in their cognition. Now it is just on the verge of becoming mainstream. I mean, we have major healthcare providers who promote mindfulness or, or good thoughts. It seems like the brain and thoughts and mindfulness are really part of the overall holistic health 
clearly and even of the non-holistic health field. Is that your experience? And that must feel so incredibly rewarding. <laughs> yes, it's it's a it's a great time to see the science and these practices and medicine all converge. And so, for you, who has dedicated you know his career to this field, what's next? What's coming? What will mindfulness be as common and meditation practice be as common as? the twice a year visit to the doctor to get your blood check done or what what are you seeing how will this be applied further into mainstream society wait so you're asking me to look into the future <laughs> yes please <laughs> but being mindful <laughs> about it people. mindful right. about it right now <laughs> yeah what i would say is that mindfulness is very popular right now and like you're saying it's been around a long long time and If you compare it even to other psychotherapies or whatever, it's actually been around for thousands of years where other longest psychotherapy, maybe is psychodynamic psychotherapy has been around about 100 years. So from a longevity perspective, it's, it's certainly been around a long time. And my guess is it's not going to, you know, it's going to be around a lot longer. Nothing is, if you take a Darwinian perspective, nothing has outcompeted it. Mm. Uh, so I think how that fits with uh, our current both Western and now modern Eastern cultures is going to be a very interesting uh, thing. And my sense is, as we start to get more and more data and find where it's really helpful, so for example, with depression, um, you know, if, if the addiction work holds up, things like that, that it's going to become, you know, it's going to become much more common because it's going to be cost effective. It's going to help mm -hmm. people in ways that our current Western medicine hasn't been tremendously helpful. As an example, you know, in addiction medicine, I'm an addiction psychiatrist, we don't have great medications for addictions, but if we can target core behavioral mechanisms and get efficacy that way, then we're going to see it used in much, you know, much more mainstream ways. And I think one way that the entire field, not just the mindfulness field, but medicine in general, It, behavioral medicine in general is moving is toward digital delivery of therapeutics so that people can mm -hmm. have these therapeutics at their fingertips. And we've been doing clinical studies now with an app called Craving to Quit where we can actually deliver mindfulness through videos, animations, in-the-moment exercises. The paradox here is we're going to use the same technology that's driving us to distraction to help us actually mm. um, work with these things. But I think we're going to see more and more digital delivery of medicine whether it's you know live coaches or videos and short bursts of training that people can get at their fingertips, I think that's going to become more commonplace. And sure. you know, we're certainly testing that in the mindfulness field ourselves. And of course, everything is always the problem and the solution in one. And uh, thanks for that look into the future. In this very moment of this show of an organic conversation <laughs> on this day in this interview, thank you. That's Dr. Judson Brewer. Thanks for making the time, Dr. Brewer. Such a pleasure to dip our toes into the world of mindfulness and meditation with you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for all your work. Dr. Judson Brewer, again, is the Director of Research at the Center for Mindfulness, University of Massachusetts Medical School, who joined us in this hour off an organic conversation, Mindfulness and Meditation, Finding Your Authentic Center. I'm Helga Hilberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And it's all about well-being and how to improve our lives step by step for oneself, everyone we engage with, and of course the planet, and the planet is the key word Here is the update from the produce doc, what this beautiful week brings us in regard to fruits and vegetables. Here is what's in season. 
And with us now is the voice of the San Francisco produce market, Mr. Organic, Mr. Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce. Earl, are you there? Good day to you both. Hey, welcome <laughs> to the show. Good day. Ho, ho, ho. It is. Yeah. Wow, there's no more daylight left. So we, here we are. Well, we uh, make up for it with a lot of celebration. And daylight for you is relative anyway, because usually you start <laughs> at like four in the morning or earlier when everything is dark. But what is happening? What's so great is there's always a harvest coming in. That is the beauty. I mean, there, of course, some, there are some prime times where the harvest is coming real local and it's just an abundance and every imaginable item and new ones coming every day. This year it's a little slower, but the colors the varieties are still very vibrant. You know, the, the, the citrus is just becoming a little more expansive now. I think navel oranges are, are starting to get some flavor. On the vegetable side, you know, we've talked lately, the last couple of weeks, about the change where we're now getting, this time of year, the weather changes and you get crisp greens. And you also get an abundance of potatoes. Mm. And potatoes, of course, is this real staple item. You know, it's amazing when you start doing a little bit of research. In, in some sense, they're kind of like apples. Thousands of varieties, just ancient history. And, of course, potatoes are from South America. Think the Andes. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like the, Andi the Andes is to potatoes, which Washington is to apples. Huh. There's grown historically 5,000 different varieties, 3,000 of them are grown in the Andes. Kind of just an uh, incredible concentration. And when you think of potatoes, uh, I remember when I first got in the business in the mid-'70s, there was a new potato that we all just were just scrambling for, and that was the yellow fin. <laughs> of course. And since then, people have continued to, to reach out and create new varieties. We had a couple come in the other day called a purple huckleberry, mm. which is this beautiful purple outside. Of course, it's almost like stones. If you get it wet, it's even more brilliant. When you cut it, it's a, a deep yellow. Really? Very oh, cool. Another one called the Oregon <laughs> Sunrise, which as you look at it in the exterior, it's got this wonderful golden cover and it has the eyes of it are red. So that's where the sunrise comes in. I mean, oh, it's nice. absolutely beautiful and stunning to see for the first time. I've never seen it before this year. And those are just two of the a little more unusual varieties that there are. But, of course, there's always the rusted and the, and the whites and the golds and the reds. And each one have endless amount of cast-offs in terms of different varieties. And, of course, some of my favorite are the fingerlings. Yeah. And those are the, the smaller, kind of long, almost like finger and they're very, very solid and dense, really low moisture, and they're great for, for me, I love to just cook those uh, and eat them whole. I like to eat them in half, and, and the way I like to cook them is, is boil them just a little bit with a, with a whole lot of salt. And most people, I think, would know how to, how to pick a good potato, you know, firm, of course, it needs to be really firm and, and look like a healthy potato. The question for me always when it comes to storage at home is we don't have the root cellars anymore that I grew yeah. up with in Germany where literally one corner was potatoes and the other corner was coal to heat yep. the house. Yep. And that was the perfectly cold, you know, you could kind of see your breath, but not it wasn't freezing down there. Mm -hmm. Perfect mm -hmm. climate. And you can have potatoes in a big sack that you bought from a farmer in the beginning, you know, in September and October. And that sack would last all the way into April or May. And I just, I remember even the smell of the burlap 
sack with uh, these yeah. 30 pounds or 50 pounds or of potatoes. We don't have that anymore. We don't buy to potatoes like that. We don't store potatoes like that. We don't even have the root cellar. If people wanted to you know, buy larger quantities or how do you store them? My potatoes always start to sprout. Best way to store them is not in the refrigerator, though. You want a, a little, you want a mild environment and you want it dark. So you want to, again, the root cellar would be perfect. But generally speaking, you can find a place in your kitchen or around the corner in a, in a cupboard or a pantry if that's, if that's to you. I, I get a box. I, I don't like to get too many. You don't want to get too many of them together. And I would just keep them in, in a dark corner and make sure it's fairly mild so I don't put it next to a heater. I don't put it in my warmest room. And most people, maybe, I don't, maybe not, but they're not, they're not home during the day. And so you may turn your heater on in, in the morning, turn it off, come back. And generally, you find you've got a place that's mild, so think 50 or 55 degrees. So not fridge, that's good to know, because I always yeah, think to slow now, it down. Sometimes just... I go to these extents of creating a little buffer zone in my crisper with with uh, napkins or whatnot, but yeah. Oh, yeah, we uh, know. We know how you are to your produce, yeah. And it is good produce. <laughs> like how I am to my dog. Yeah, no, the full <laughs> the full treatment for every potato. Well, I love hearing about these new varieties. Do you have photos of those on your website? My marketing manager's been on vacation, but we're going to get that up. And that's, of course, Earl's Organic. Earl's Organic. Dot com. <laughs> yeah, Earl's Organic. Yeah. Dot com. So, yeah, we will have some pictures. We also, I think we still have some pictures up from, from uh, you know, Thanksgiving on some yams, which, which is some really great stuff. Check that out. Beautiful. Okay, potatoes. And it is the holidays. So there is still, it's nice to hear that there's still a lot of crops coming in. Uh, we talked about pomegranates a couple of weeks ago. And it's, you know, produce never stops. It just changes in in direction and distance and kind of maybe appearance. But it's a year-round job that you do for us to select the best. And again, that's earlsorganic.com for for great updates on what's happening on the produce dock, and then that translates into your store just a few days later, usually. Uh, yeah. Happy holidays, Earl. Mm. Yes, a couple weeks to go now. Happy holidays. Um, yeah, it's holidays. here. It's here. This is already yeah. happening yeah. with you know, bigger you know, meals and dishes. And yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the main things that affects me, you know, affects us all, is, is the lack of sunlight. But also for me, it's the angle that the sun takes this time of year. You know, as as it, as it travels mm. away from us, sure. and the angle is just lower in the horizon. It just gives a whole other feel to the day. So that's just you know one of those, I, you could say, benefits of this time of year. It's it's a different sort of feel to the day. I I kind of dig it. Yeah, Me it's interesting how, how maybe we made that up or we made the connection, but how you know persimmons and all these decorations and christmas trees and and heavier foods and then there's the sun and everything seems to be golden like the the color right now is golden wherever you look if you have a sunny day because of the angle the sun doesn't even really get up it has this low angle golden yeah. shine to it it's like perfect photography light all day mm. that's what it feels mm -hmm. right yeah and i, yeah, exactly. I totally it's never agree too harsh. everything yeah. is drenched in gold and orange and red and it's just beautiful <laughs> yeah on that as much please don't have as much of it yeah but that <laughs> makes it so spe so special quality over that quantity exactly <laughs> thank you earl beautiful oh, very festive yeah. and we'll have you back next week 
Good deal. Hey, uh, enjoy the holidays. Yes. Love you both. You Love, too. You. Love you. Too. Thank you. Ho, ho, ho. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye now. Yeah, the changing light, holidays, slowing down, mindfulness, maybe stop working because nobody's really working anymore. Emails just <laughs> drop drastically now It's actually this week. kind of the perfect really time wonderful. to be practicing your mindfulness. mindfulness. That's right. Be mindful of the beauty around you, especially since light is scarce and life is scarce and it's beautiful to celebrate it every day. Yes, Sita. Yeah, it is. I I always feel like wherever you place your intention is where you will find your attention. Yeah, the present of presence. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll be back with another episode soon. Thank you so Happy much. Happy holidays. Bye. Bye. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. This show would not be possible without the ongoing support from our listeners. Whether it's a dollar a month or a one-time donation, please consider becoming a patron of An Organic Conversation. For more information on how to support this program, please visit patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash an organic conversation thank you for your contribution an organic conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters earl's organic produce a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store home or business since 1988 the website is earlsorganic.com and also fry vineyards america's first certified organic winery producing organic and certified biodynamic wine. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. Thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash an organic conversation. We are your hosts, Helga Helberg and Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye.